Okay. So, um, where would you like to start today? Um, well, I feel like the Sean Penn El Chapo, it's kind of very um, uh, timely since uh, Mr. Penn did an interview last night on 60 Minutes with Charlie Rose, where he tried to explain the thought process behind his interview with El Chapo and took an opportunity to say nasty things about professional journalists. Um, so it was a really fascinating look into the brain of Sean Penn, which is not somewhere I'd want to spend a lot of time, I think was my takeaway. Okay, so what was your main takeaway from that interview? I, you know, I, he's just so self-involved, um, I think was the big thing that I got from it. Apparently his goal was to somehow fight the war on drugs um, through the article, which when he's talking about farting in El Chapo's <laughs> presence, I'm really not sure how that um, facilitates uh, the the uh, a conversation about the war on drugs. Um, but yeah, he does seem to think that like he can change the world by writing a really uh, flowery, wordy, self-aggrandizing <laughs> interview. And you know, he failed, but not not because he did anything wrong, but because people reading the article were like too dumb to get his point yes. which i find just obnoxious so <laughs> and deeply insulting yes um because there are probably a million ways that you could start your your own personal crusade on like america's policy on drug and like detention and arrests and all of that and probably interviewing a notorious drug lord in a way that just is flattering to the drug lord doesn't really seem like it would start a conversation because I've read the article and, and I know that you have as well but it was 10,000 words of not even really calling him to task on anything that he's done no and you know the actual I guess I would say the it seemed like the actual interview piece of it was maybe maybe a quarter of the mm -hmm. article and it had questions like how do you get along with your mom exactly um, where and, are you from right and then i think he did ask him something to the effect of you know do you think you contribute to all the issues that people have with drugs mm -hmm. and because of the way i guess the interview was done um you know el chapo was able to just say no not really and that was the end of it exactly because it was so i don't know for people who haven't read it and if you haven't really save yourself <laughs> the half hour 45 minutes to read it because it really isn't worth it um if you wanted to get some insight into el chapo himself but essentially sean penn is set up to meet him um in the jungles of like the Sinaloa province in Mexico with Kate Del Castillo, who is the actress who helped facilitate the meeting. But so they had a, they had a short like meet and greet in some village. And then they were going to meet again in eight days to have a sit down actual interview. Um, but that sit down actual interview didn't happen. And what essentially occurred was Sean Penn like emailed the, questions to him and El Chapo responded to those questions but there was no follow-up there it was just it was just written questions actually so right and I, I did spare myself the pain of watching uh, the video of El Chapo responding to these questions but um, apparently it was about I think they said it was about 17 minutes long the interview with this you know big bad drug lord that Sean Penn spent months trying to meet up with so it seems like a enormous um waste of time and really distracting attention from what admittedly, I guess what Sean Penn's point was and is admittedly a really important issue, um, which is the failure of the war on drugs in this country. And, you know, kind of how do we, um, sort of stop the demand end, I guess, on our side and 
what effect that would have on um, the supply the side. supply side in Mexico, yeah. right? Um, and I think one of the points that El Chapo tried to make was, if it's not me, it's someone else. So it's not like just because you put me away means that all of a sudden the drug trade will stop. It's if there's a demand for it, there will be a supply for it. It's just free market economics at work. Right, which is certainly borne out. Um, I have recently been watching the TV show Narcos and um, starring Pablo Escobar, which was set back in the 80s and early 90s, and now we're you know 20 years on and nothing seems to have really changed. So, um, But yeah, I did think you know Sean Penn had some pretty um, stellar quotes. Um, I think his one... This is probably the most annoying, but my, possibly my favorite. So when the interviewer, Charlie Rose, asked him, what you're really saying, what I really regret is not anything that I did. I regret that people misunderstood what I did. Sean Penn responded, that's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> so it's just the ultimate um, non-apology apology and um, his believing in his heart that he is the new Hunter S. Thompson was just very, everything about him was annoying to me. And um, that... <laughs> The time I spent reading the article is certainly, you know, an hour of my life that I'll never get back, so. Um, so I have, like, a couple of takeaways from this whole story, <laughs> which is apparently the shirt that El Chapo was wearing during the meeting has sold out at all the boutiques that carried it in Mexico. So is he, like, the drug dealer's version of Kate Middleton? I think he is, because <laughs> that shirt was heinous, and the fact that he's, like, setting style trends is, like, really deeply disturbing. Really ugly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the, the second and the third thing, I think, is really what, aside from... Um, like the public outcry over Sean Penn's involvement in this deal is really what are the legal ramifications for him, right? So he has been, um, you know, people have said basically he could be charged with aiding and abetting a fugitive. Um, and then also the other fallout is really about um, whether or not he'd have to be a witness um, in any upcoming trials against El Chapo. Um, it's my understanding that since he's been recaptured, uh, the United States has started processing extradition papers to have him brought to America, El Chapo, not Sean Penn, um, and tried in America and basically like jailed here. And so the likelihood of him escaping through like an elaborate underground tunnel in a, a low atmosphere motorcycle will be greatly reduced. But so, you know, will Sean Penn have to be a witness in, you know, a portion of his trial? Um, because according to El Chapo's lawyers, um, the article said what some of one of his lawyers has since claimed that the article contains falsities. According to his lawyer, it's a lie, absurd speculation from Mr. Penn, and Mr. Penn should be called to testify to respond to the stupidity stupidities he has said. So you know this doesn't uh, just because El Chapo has been um, recaptured and Sean Penn is dealing with Charlie Rose doesn't mean that this is the end for him necessarily legally. Right. And there's also, uh, you know, an interesting question that came up during the interview last night and that has kind of surrounded the whole recapture of El Chapo um, is whether Sean Penn and Kate Del Castillo, um, their meeting with El Chapo actually led to the Mexican authorities um, being able to locate El Chapo. Sean Penn says that that's not true. Um, you know, he definitely characterizes their meeting not so much as um, we've found El Chapo and we can do a better job than the Mexican authorities, but rather El Chapo wanted to meet with us. So he kind of disclosed his location. Um, but the question then becomes, is uh, Sean Penn now under threat from the uh, various Mexican, the Sinaloa cartel, mm -hmm. which um, needless to say, is probably not really happy that their leader has been recaptured and um, the subject of this kind of insane interview I would imagine that 
if El Chapo says the word, like, the cartel will basically just take care of that problem for him. So the fact that I think Sean Penn said in that interview last night that he doesn't feel like he's in danger, and um, and I don't think Ms. Del Castillo has said that she feels that way either. Right. Um, but I would imagine that given that, um, you know, the war on drugs and the characters in the war on drugs, namely from the, the like the drug warlord side, like violence is not something that is new or um, you know unknown to them. I think that's that's very true. So Sean Penn may want to rethink his decision making processes going forward. So, um, do you think that he would actually be um, correctly charged with aiding and abetting a fugitive? It's a really interesting question. I don't know, other than getting information about where El Chapo was, I don't think based on the facts that we know, there's any evidence that he really assisted him or helped him stay in hiding, um, except that he didn't turn him in, which um, under most... uh, in most states, there's no requirement. It's kind of like a Good Samaritan idea. You don't have to, um, you're not obligated necessarily to report crimes. So um, from that perspective, I don't know that he would, it would be appropriate to charge Sean Penn with any crime uh, based on his locating and meeting with El Chapo. Um, I guess morally, whether he should have given people a heads up as to where this, you know, murdering uh bad guy was hiding out that's a separate issue that you know mr penn i think has to live with but yeah i mean essentially he didn't know where he was going to meet with him just that he was going to essentially fly into mexico and then be put through like this these various um ways of trying to get from you know the landing spot to where el chapo was hiding and and i don't know that he knew in advance where any of those places were and certainly um, it was probably only until, um, you know, he actually met with him face-to-face and then left and then did nothing about that. Um, although, you know, Ms. Del Castillo was in contact with him to arrange for the meetup, so it's, I mean, at some point she could have said, well, yeah, I, I know where I can get him for you. Right, and it did seem like uh, the way that it was described in the Rolling Stone piece um, that Sean Penn and a couple of his associates you know, flew to Mexico and the rest of the travel was basically arranged by, I believe it was El Chapo's son, who was also one of his attorneys because apparently the only people who could visit him were attorneys, so they just labeled a lot of random people as El Chapo's attorneys so oh. that they could getting to visit him while he was in actual prison, not while he was in hiding. Interesting. So the prison didn't actually check to see whether or not you were an attorney, or did his son go to law school just so that he could visit his dad? That question was not answered okay. in the in the article, but that's a really good point. Um, so the other thing that I was um, wondering about, which I totally lost my train of thought now, um, <coughs> All right, well, maybe I'll come back to it. And I guess one question, you know, one issue that you had mentioned um, in talking about El Chapo's recapture and the United States government's involvement in it is the the question of whether he can be extradited. Um, Again, going back to my recent Narcos uh, watching, 
back in the 1980s, the government of the United States and the government of Colombia had an extradition pact where when they arrested somebody in Colombia for um, drug trafficking, they could be immediately kind of stuck on a plane and sent to the United States um, because similar to what I think the situation was with El Chapo um, in Colombia, the jails for drug traffickers were um, basically country clubs, which I know we refer to jails as country clubs in this country. Um, they were in fact that in, uh, in South America. And so I wonder if um, Mexico has a similar extradition treaty with the United States or if there's some other grounds under which the U.S. is able to um, pull El Chapo within its jurisdiction. So from my understanding, the United States and Mexico do have an extradition treaty. I don't know if there's a special one for drug crimes, which sounds like maybe the one with Colombia might have been, but um, I know generally we have an extradition treaty with Mexico. So um, the process has started, which we have to file an application um, and, and basically... I'm sure, and Mexico, the Mexican government is cooperating with the United States in the extradition of El Chapo to the United States. It's just um, Mr. El Chapo's attorneys who are fighting extradition for for good reason, um, as as one would imagine, um, to keep him from coming to the United States. Uh, another person in Mexico who's fighting extradition is that affluenza team. Yes. Kid. I guess, yeah, he's still a kid, right? He's like I 16 he's, or 18. I think he's 18 now. Yeah. Um, right, he was, was he arrested in uh, Cancun. Yeah, or no, uh, Puerto Vallarta. Puerto Vallarta with his mom after fleeing the country. Ordering um, pizza, that's what gave up gave him up their pizza order. Yeah, I think that kind of a common theme with, the, with criminals is you don't get caught by doing, like, smart things. <laughs> it always seems like it's the dumb mistake you make, and that's what leads the police to you, so... Uh, yeah. So yeah. So there definitely is um, an extradition treaty between the United States and Mexico. Um, one I read an article in the last uh, couple of weeks, and it was written in the Guardian. And I think it was um, the author's name last name was like Schiano or something like that. Or and he had written a book essentially about the Sicilian mafia. He was Italian, or he is Italian, and he basically and his book I think in part talks about how. Um, pop culture really drives how like the mafia and like drug overlords sort of interact with the world in so insofar as like um after Scarface came out like a lot of Italian mafiosos wanted to build like giant Tony Montana like houses and like really want to live that lifestyle that they saw up on the big screen interesting Um, so there was like some discussion as to whether or not, like, Narcos and the story of Pablo Escobar is really driving this whole, like, desire of El Chapo to, like, reach out to that actress and and have his story portrayed in a way that he could, like, define the narrative and, um, you know, and he would have a hand in, like, what the ultimate, like, media package would look like. Interesting. You know, and I will say, having watched Narcos, which did kind of come out pretty recently, um, it does not paint a particularly negative picture of Pablo Escobar. Um, You know, when you kind of dig into all the awful things he did, he was behind a bombing of an airplane that killed 107 completely innocent people. Um, His goal had been to kill a presidential candidate who was meant to have been on that plane. 
um, you know, shooting, gunning down people in the streets, uh, blowing up a lot of cars and buildings uh, throughout Bogota and the rest of Colombia. Um, but there is kind of this romanticism in the public, in the pop culture. You know, I guess kind of starting with Scarface is probably the best example. The Godfather. Godfather, right? Of uh, these, uh, you know, big time crime lords. Um, so it's it's interesting that that could be driving uh, El Chapo's sort of decision making and ultimately kind of lead to his downfall. Yeah. Um, yeah, so those were like so those are the key things that I pulled from this whole like Sean Penn El Chapo well, it'll be, saga. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, it does seem like uh, Sean Penn has put himself in a pretty dangerous spot. Yeah, um, not only from like the the, the cartel, but also the government, the U.S. government, the Mexican government. Um. Right. I don't think he um, got himself any fans by saying that El Chapo was basically the second and more important president of Mexico. <laughs> so, um, good luck to you, Sean Penn. We'll see how this shakes out. Um, okay, so moving on from Sean Penn. Um, what did you have up next for us? So I have, um, with the NFL playoffs in full swing um, and being a big Patriots fan myself, uh, probably the most important thing that happened this week was uh, the issue surrounding Chandler Jones, um, defensive player for, defensive star, frankly, for the Patriots, who um, showed up at a police station down the street from his home in Foxborough, Massachusetts, where he um, was shirtless in very cold weather, um, got to the police station, fell to his knees, apparently appeared to be praying, um, was taken into uh, not police custody, but was put under, uh, had an ambulance called for him. And it turns out that he was suffering the ill effects of synthetic marijuana, which raised a couple of questions for me. The most immediate one is, um, is what is synthetic marijuana and is it legal? Um, I learned that synthetic marijuana not actually marijuana. Um, apparently it involves some chemicals that are related to the cannabis plant. So that's how they get the name. But um, really what it is, it's just one of the many designer drugs that oh. apparently can be kind of tweaked and make people horribly, horribly sick. Um, Which apparently made Mr. Jones. Right. And um, in the state of Massachusetts, synthetic weed is not legal. Um, however, apparently because Chandler Jones, you know, sought med was seeking medical attention, clearly he was in distress. He didn't have any drugs on him, weapons. He just wanted somebody to give him some help. In spite of the fact that the police did go to his home and found, um, apparently some drug paraphernalia and residue, he's not being charged with any crime associated with this incident, was the police investigation really to try to figure out what was wrong with him? That's based on the, um, they did release the uh, dispatcher transcript between the police who had arrived at um, Chandler Jones' home and the dispatcher back at the police station. Um, and it did seem that their goal was just to figure out what what happened to him, what he was on, as opposed to sort of looking for a reason to arrest him. Um, they reported that he was, there was some kind of class D, which is an illegal substance <laughs> involved in his 
situation, uh, but they've since come out and said that he didn't break any laws. And he wasn't under any investigation for any wrongdoing. Exactly. It was clearly just like medical attention that he was seeking and that was what was provided to him. Right. Um, I did find it interesting. I made the uh, mistake of reading the comment section on uh, one story that I read about um, Chandler Jones this week. uh, Comment from, I believe the person did describe themselves as a former police officer who didn't understand why he wouldn't get in a car and drive himself to the hospital, which seemed like a really kind of silly question. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I guess, good to see that he was able to get the help he needed and he was back out playing on uh, Saturday. He didn't do anything, I don't think, of note, but I guess for better or worse, that's, uh, that's the best we could have asked for. Um, did he, so did he go to the police state? Did he, like, go there on foot then? He okay. did. Apparently... Um, the Foxborough, this particular police station is just a, it's a pretty short walk from his home. Um, allegedly he heard someone, he shared with the police that, excuse me, someone told him to go to the police station to get help. Um, when the police arrived at his home, there was nobody else there. So they aren't sure if the um, voice telling him to go get assistance was a, (laughs) A a side effect of the medication or perhaps, you know, after he left, um, whoever had been at the house with him might have fled yeah, for well. fear that they were going to get in trouble since they had illegal drugs. And he was wandering the streets <laughs> looking for police assistance. So, well, well, I'm glad that he was okay um, and that he was able to play. I watched the majority of the playoff games this Saturday. And for one reason or another, they weren't extremely watchable games. Um, you know, giant leads or like very little offense so that like in the third quarter games were like 9-10 and things like that. Um, I did think that the Packers-Cardinals games was like the end of that game was pretty exciting. Um, But otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, I I believe they, I was reading about, I did not get to see the um, end of the Packers-Cardinals game, but uh, people were comparing Aaron Rodgers to Matt Saracen from Friday Night Lights fame. Um, which made me very happy and sad that I missed the end of the I was going to say, one so. of our personal favorites on, on this show. Um, Matt Saracen will always be my quarterback. So. <laughs> uh, yes, we will always ride for <laughs> Matt Saracen. Um, the one thing that I am slightly disappointed in is because now it's basically Broncos, Pats in the championship game for the AFC. It's another week of like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. Thanks. It's like, the 333rd time they've come together and like just the mythos that's built up around them. It's like, oh, I've got to suffer through a week of that. Right. And it does seem like they're stepping it up since everybody assumes that Peyton Manning will be retiring at the end of this season. Yes. Although I don't know why people are making that assumption unless I missed a report of him announcing his retirement. Um, he does seem to be able to keep coming back. Oh, he also doesn't seem to be one of those people who can go gently into that good night. No, I hope he doesn't pull another Brett Favre because that, I feel like, was an embarrassing situation for everybody involved. And uh, just go back to your farm in Tennessee, Peyton. <laughs> It'll be all right. So. Um, so we actually have more Patriots news, or we can go to, to like Peyton Manning news. But the Patriots news is actually a pretty short thing. So um, this past week, uh, essentially... Aaron Hernandez, former Patriots wide receiver, tight end. Tight end. Tight end. Um, he who is in jail currently serving a life sentence uh, after being convicted of murdering Odin Lloyd that basically sucked up a lot of our brain space last <laughs> summer. 
Was it last summer? I believe it was. Yes, it yeah. was last summer. The summer before was the Whitey Bulger case yeah. <laughs> for all of you Boston legal uh, nerds. So what happened after the verdict came out was that a woman essentially came forward and told um, Aaron Hernandez's attorney that she had overheard a juror or she was with a juror um, who knew more information about the double murders that Hernandez will be tried for coming up. And so essentially there was questions about like juror tampering or like how much information did she have and whether or not uh, she should have been kicked off the jury, um, essentially trying to overturn um, Hernandez's conviction and, and probably give him a retrial. Uh, so it turned out that this woman who um, had met Hernandez through her father, who was a uh, like an inmate at Bristol County Jail with uh, Mr. Hernandez, basically got kind of friendly, as you would, with um, someone who you actually can't really meet face-to-face with. They wrote letters. Um, he had told her that, like, um, they could hang out together and he would be pretty upset if he found out that she were, like, chilling with other guys. So he felt kind of proprietary over her, and in turn, she felt kind of proprietary over him. But uh, the judge denied um, Hernandez's request to look further into that juror, but she also had very harsh words for this woman, basically saying that, um, that you know, there was a reason for her to make up the story and that really um, we're not going to we're not going to go past this like this motion and uh, this decision to uh, try to reach open the case against uh, Hernandez and the Odin Lloyd situation. So, I mean, it was a it was a kind of a blip on on the radar, considering the bigger picture of what's happening to him. Right. Yeah. And it's, you know, there is a really high threshold, um, to get a new trial once you've gotten a, um, you know, jury decision from your, your peers. Um, so the, I, you know, the, the hope that they would get the verdict overturned based on this kind of random issue with a juror, uh, did seem like a stretch, um, and you know the one one of the interesting things that is that they believe that Odin Lloyd was killed because he, Aaron Hernandez was worried he was going to blab about these other two murders that um, Aaron Hernandez, I believe, is going to be tried for at some point um, this year. Yeah, they delayed it. I know um, it was uh, not a joint request to delay, but it was I think um, maybe the defense like moved to delay it, and the prosecution didn't have a problem with it. Yeah, so. Uh, so we don't know when that is actually going to start, but I'm sure you'll be hearing a lot about it when it does happen. And for the time being, Aaron Hernandez will um, not be seeing the fresh air of freedom for uh, yeah ever again. <laughs> <laughs> um, he did join the he joined the Bloods while he was in prison. I believe so. There had been um, you know so sort of the background with Aaron Hernandez is he had this troubled background. I'm using air quotes for uh, those of you who are listening to this, um, where he'd been caught using marijuana um, a number of times in college. That's sort of what folks knew about him going into his draft year. Um, But then there was speculation, I guess, that he had some kind of gang involvement back in Bristol, Connecticut, where he grew up. Um, So once the, he was accused of murder, all of the, this, these stories came out about his um, childhood and his time in college um, that he may have been sort of a, I don't know that you can be a peripheral member of the Bloods, but that he was kind of involved with that. Um, But it does sound like he officially joined up while in prison. Um, 
Yes, a, a very like large neck tattoo was was the key indicator of his uh, his newly embraced affiliation. Um, yeah, there was some speculation from people who didn't know the story quite as well, like you know why did the Crips step up their recruiting efforts or what was in the Latin King's presentation that turned him off. But um, it's so uh, we make light of this, but I'm sure that for Mr. Hernandez, it's probably a way to survive in prison. He's also, he did some other, did he? I believe he was found with a um, uh, homemade knife in his cell, and he might have been put in... Solitary. Solitary, solitary. right. Yeah. I know he was in protective custody kind of on and off during his trial, um, Most I believe largely because he's a famous person and with that kind of made him a target um, in gen pop uh, but I be- my understanding was from news reports once he had been convicted he was just kind of treated like any other inmate except when he causes trouble and then he <laughs> goes into solitary confinement so um, it does seem like Aaron Hernandez is uh, you know finding a way to survive in prison which I guess is all he can do at this point but, yeah uh, I think so um, well, so on the other side of the AFC championship <laughs> is um, Peyton Manning and those Denver Broncos. And uh, the big news about Peyton Manning that's come out uh, probably in the last three weeks was a report that came out of Al Jazeera America that essentially did this expose on human growth hormone and um, sort of how you get it in America. And it's like links to athletes and athletic performance and um, they essentially interviewed a guy. So the Al Jazeera America report was um, a track and field athlete in Britain who wanted to, you know, he was assigned to go undercover to see if he could establish some ties and actually get HGH. Uh, his cover story was that he was making one final push for like the 2016 Rio Olympics and he just wanted to like explore the world and he out there as to like sort of illegal substances and, and he was ready to go to the dark side to, to make this last push. Um, you know, all, all as the, the setup for, for talking to people about this. Um, so he was eventually linked up to, um, a number of people here in America and in Canada actually to see if he could facilitate some sort of relationship to, to get him on a regiment um, his name, I can't actually remember right now, but, uh, you know, he was being interviewed the, so the athlete and the guy who eventually came out with all of the, the started name dropping, essentially, they were in a car and they were talking and the, the British athletes like, well, you know, tell me who are some of these people that you've hooked up? Like, you know, do what, will I see results? Things like that. So he started naming a number of people on the Green Bay Packers. And then sort of the biggest fish to come out of this was Peyton Manning. He had said that he worked at an Indianapolis area. Um, like the Geyer Institute, which is an anti, anti-aging facility. Um, and that he was working there in 2011, which is the time um, that Peyton Manning was dealing with the after effects of some pretty significant neck surgery. Um, and so according to this guy who I believe he was an intern with the Geyer Institute, um, the, uh, company provided HGH to the Manning family, to uh, Ashley Manning. Manning, Peyton's wife, um, and that presumably found its way to Peyton himself, mm-hmm. um, uh, so the, uh, the the Green Bay Packers, who were named in this report, have come out and said it's completely false. We're going to sue 
basically Al Jazeera America for defamation. And I believe Peyton Manning has also, he has not actually come out to deny that Ashley Manning received uh, HGH shipments, but he has also said that he was going to sue Al Jazeera America for defamation. He did. And that was something that was kind of interesting in the uh, interviews they did with Peyton Manning was um, when he was asked about, you know, basically, did your wife get these drugs? He did absolutely did not deny it and instead focused really on the invasion of her privacy um, that had been uh, sort of perpetrated by the disclosure of this information, which leads to a kind of an interesting question, which is, are, you know, when you've got this anti-aging institute, whatever that means, is it really a medical facility and subject to the same privacy rules that, you know, a hospital would be necessarily? Mm-hmm. Um at least in my very kind of uh, preliminary research, I wasn't able to determine one way or the other, but it does seem as though the um, the Geyer Institute may have opened itself up to a lawsuit by Ashley Manning um, for allowing one of its employees or former employee, um, I suppose allowing is the wrong word, but having one of its former employees um, disclose what is private medical information about her to the entire world. Um, another interesting issue is whether this guy, um, who was the source of the Al Jazeera America report was in fact an employee of the Geyer Institute. Um, once the story came out, the Geyer Institute claimed that yes, he may have been an intern. I believe initially they said he never worked for them. Then it came out that, well, he was, he did work for us, but it wasn't until 2013 then Al Jazeera America was able to produce a recording where they called um, the Geyer Institute to verify the source's employment. And um, at this point, the Geyer Institute uh, on tape, an employee there said that he had worked for the Institute in 2011. So the timing that way matches up. Um, the intern, the former intern himself has come out and said that he basically um, was not aware that he was being recorded for, um, a, you know, basically a news expose and has come out and essentially denied, um, not denied the allegations necessarily because he's on record as saying them, but just essentially saying, like, uh, I was really trying to sell this guy on a product and on a, and on, on a regimen plan. And basically, I, it's like, it was like my puffery essentially was, was what his, like, it, gotten us all embroiled in the situation and um you know not going so far as to saying that he lied but definitely that he stretched the truth mm-hmm. perhaps um <clears throat> excuse me what you know it's sort of uh to bring this back to kind of the legal issues here um one issue that's considered really heavily when you're evaluating evidence in part of a litigation is sort of making statements that are against your interest when you Maybe don't know that they're against your interest. Um, so the fact that he said all this stuff about Peyton Manning, um, you know, used these drugs and his his puffery at the time that he didn't know he was being recorded, only to backtrack after he's been threatened to be sued by Peyton Manning, kind of leads me to believe that he was probably telling the truth in the first place. Um, but, you know, it'll be interesting to see where this story goes. It does seem as though the um, NFL and their broadcast partners have been under, have had no interest in covering this whatsoever. Um, so we haven't heard too much about it since the story first broke, I think right before New Year's. Um, and in sort of, uh, other interesting news, Al Jazeera has, America has confirmed that it'll be shutting down its operations, um, 
sometime before April of this year. So uh, it may become a moot point since they won't be broadcasting any longer. Um, it is interesting that um, when essentially asked to talk about it, Jim Nance during one of the uh, Broncos games basically said that he refused to talk about it. And I wasn't sure that you were allowed to refuse to talk about these things if you are essentially like a broadcast journalist and you're being asked point blank about a situation. Whether, I mean, he could have just as easily have said, these are the allegations, this is what, you know, Peyton Manning's side of the story is, but just to outright refuse to discuss it was, like, it was sort of surprising to me that that was the tact that essentially a lot of people and a lot of media outlets have taken with regards to these allegations. Right, that they just are simply going to ignore the fact that they're out there, which does seem like they are um, dropping the journalistic ball, for <laughs> lack of a better phrase. Um, it does seem as though, you know, I understand Peyton Manning has taken the position that this was irresponsible journalism on the part of Al Jazeera and that, you know, he didn't do anything wrong and they're, you know, slandering his wife. Um, by disclosing all this information about her, but it does seem like it's incumbent upon other um, journalistic outlets, whether it's CBS, ESPN, um, wherever it may be, to kind of follow up on these allegations, um, because Al Jazeera is certainly, uh, at least to date, standing by its story, um, and the only... You know, I think they seem to be, Peyton Manning and his kind of defenders seem to be making a lot out of the fact that the um, source is recanting his story, um, but again, he's appears to be recanting his story under some form of duress, so um, it just seems like this, this uh, warrants a little more follow-up than it's getting, um, and I guess the question is, if it weren't Peyton Manning that these allegations were being made against, or if it weren't an NFL player, um, maybe if it were a less lucrative sports league, would that be getting more attention? So if it were just the, like, I guess there were defensive players on the Green Bay Packers and he never said Peyton Manning's name. Like, would it's would it be something that people would look into? Or are essentially those aren't big enough fish to fry? I mean, I understand that there's probably some weariness about the source. Um, I don't know that a lot of people are very familiar with Al Jazeera in America, but you know Al Jazeera, like globally, is a very well-respected news organization. Even if it might have like weird connotations for people, um, and you're right. I mean, if it was, I don't know that it's necessarily the sport because if it were a big name in like baseball or hockey, I think that it would it would probably have the same impact. But the fact that no one's doing anything is just really surprising. Just Yeah, it seems very suspicious. So The question that has come up for me, and this is more of a practical issue, which is, okay, if you were going to be receiving shipments of a drug that's not in and of itself illegal, but is a banned substance for your workplace, would you have it shipped to your spouse or your partner? Because that's pretty easily traceable to you, but at the same time, you wouldn't want it to have it shipped to someone who's not connected to you because you have less like actual ability to control like that individual. But I mean, I just doesn't seem like that's, I would have it sent to my spouse. <laughs> right. Like, and you would think he would have learned from the, um, Roger Clemens exactly. <laughs> story, which, um, involved Roger Clemens wife taking receipt of a lot of the steroids that he was alleged to have used. Um, I believe 
Mrs. Clemens said that she was using, she used some of them for her own personal use, but I, uh, my understanding was in one of the various litigations that Roger Clemens was involved in, it came out that his wife was kind of the conduit to get the drugs from mm -hmm. the drug supplier to Roger. So you're right. Um, I guess there's a balance there of it's pretty easily traceable back to Ashley Manning to get it back to Peyton Manning. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, at least now he kind of knows where the medication's coming from. And in a criminal case, she can't be compelled to testify against him. So because of the spousal so privilege, um, which is, I had to study it for the bar uh, in California, but then as I was studying for the bar, it actually came up in an episode of Law and Order, and they got it right, oh. which I was like really excited about. And I was like, "Hey, it's reinforcing my studying, so I don't have to feel bad about watching Law and Order instead of studying for the bar." It, it's Law and Order. Basically, following any trial, if you've got like good uh, reporters, can be very helpful for studying. I had a similar <laughs> issue where the Whitey Bulger trial was going on while I was studying for the California bar. Um, lots of evidence <laughs> questions uh, that came up in that trial so I felt like I was able to be I could justify my um, uh, obsessive <laughs> following of the Whitey Bulger trial because it helped me study for the bar. So, uh, so the spousal privilege just um, as an FYI is if um, essentially if you've committed any sort of wrongdoing and you tell your spouse about it or your spouse knows about it your spouse can't be compelled to testify against you or uh, called to testify about um, what he or she knows. Right, and there are two sort of spousal privileges. Um, one can be waived by the spouse who's being asked to testify. So, you know, if, uh, if Ashley Manning decided that she wanted mm -hmm. to testify against Peyton Manning, she could, um, but nobody can make her do that. The other spousal privilege cannot be, can only be waived by both spouses. So, um, uh, not that Peyton Manning's being charged with anything criminally <laughs> no. here, but it could have been in the back of his head that <laughs> at least she would, nobody could make her talk if she didn't want to. So, yeah. Uh, and of course, the just me being nosy, I really want to know why was Ashley Manning using HGH um, if, in fact, this was all in the up and up and it was really just um, something that was being sent to her. I do understand that it has been said to have anti aging properties. So my so in watch because I watched the Al Jazeera America report. Um, they had an endocrinologist on, and he basically said that you would only take HGH in like three circumstances, and it had to do with like um, basically your endocrine system and um, like maybe some gastrointestinal issues. But definitely, um, it appears that those might be three legitimate reasons why you would take HGH, but it sounds like HGH is used in a variety of circumstances. I know that um, in podcasts that we listen to, uh, the Bill Simmons one and um, maybe one he had with like uh, David Jacoby a while ago, I mean both, like David Jacoby's grandmother was prescribed HGH and Simmons had the opportunity to take HGH to like write about it because he had to rehab his knee. So right. it sounds like it might be actually lawfully prescribed by doctors in other situations other than the three that this endocrinologist talked about. So And if you're not a professional athlete then it or um, a, you know an amateur athlete competing in the Olympics, it probably doesn't matter all that much as long as you're under medical supervision that you're using it um, because again, it's not illegal per se. Mm -hmm. um, the issue for Peyton Manning, though, is that it's most certainly banned in his profession, um, and the whole situation looks very suspicious, mm -hmm. especially his really aggressive reaction to the um, 
Al Jazeera reports. Um, it does seem like a lot of people are kind of giving him a pass, at least from what I've read and what I've listened to. You know, he wasn't, he had undergone neck surgery. It was for like rehabilitative purposes to even get him back to a place where he could probably function not only as like a person, but as a, as a football player. Um, and there might have been some discussion as to whether or not he was really attached to a team at the time. So I think he was a member of the Colts when this was happening before right. he was traded or before he was a free agent and went to Denver. Denver. But um, certainly he wasn't playing at the time that he was um, allegedly getting shipments of HGH. Right. Um, and, you know, there's, I, I guess, HGH is sort of one thing, but you've had issues with, like, Kobe Bryant going off to Germany to get plasma shot into his knees. So it does seem like there's a, a fine but pretty bright line between what you can, what are sort of acceptable kind of alternative rehab um, treatments and using HGH. So I guess that's a that would be another question for Peyton Manning is why, when you could have tried a bunch of other things, would you have um, used HGH? And I suppose that could then be turned around on us and, um, you know, yeah, why would I have used HGH? Clearly this exactly when wasn't I, for me. Yeah, when I could have gone and, and done a lot of other different things. Flown off to Germany and had yes. all kinds of stuff shot to my neck. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, that's, a uh, Peyton and a lot of Patriots news. <laughs> I don't think there's anything really exciting going on in the NFC, uh, title game. title game. So it's Carolina and the Cardinals. Right. And Carolina no longer has Greg Hardy or his, uh, <laughs> wide scope of legal issues. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Larry Fitzgerald seems like a really stand up guy. So right. I, I, I don't know that. They've got any legal issues stemming from the NFC title game. No, and I think the worst thing Cam Newton does is he dances a lot, and people don't like it because they <laughs> want him to be boring. So <laughs> I don't have a problem with him dancing. No. So just come out and say that on the record. Seems like an appropriate reaction to playing football. So it's, And uh, I understand people who say that you really shouldn't dance until you actually have, like, you know, earn something. And up until like getting to the NFC title game, he, the Carolina Panthers hadn't really done well enough for him to be as sort of like not showboaty, but kind of boisterous. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, you know, like act like you've been there before. Well, he hasn't been there before, so he doesn't really know how to act like it. But anyways, rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess our last two items um, for today's podcast are kind of uh, quick takes. Um, the first is the death of Lawrence Phillips, um, which is, uh, Largely a sad, well, it is a very sad story. Um, Mr. Phillips had been in jail. Uh, I'm not actually sure what he was imprisoned for this time around. So he was in jail um, and he was serving, I think, like a 32-year sentence, 25 of which were uh, he was charged and convicted of assaulting um, three teenagers with a car. He basically drove into them after a football dispute during a pickup football game in LA. And then while he was in jail, or at least as he was being tried for that, um, the deadly assault, he was also found uh, guilty of uh, assaulting a former girlfriend, um, including assault with great bodily injury, false imprisonment, and making a criminal threat. So he was um, also sentenced to another seven years for that for a total of 32 years um 
so that's what he was in jail for at the time um, that he and essentially like his cellmate um, Damien Soward was found dead in the cell that they shared and essentially Phillips was charged for that uh, capital murder and he was uh, in the beginning stages of um, being charged with uh, first-degree murder. So the kind of background on Lawrence Phillips, um, for those of you who might not follow college football too closely, is that he was, I believe, a star running back for um, the University of Nebraska back in the early 90s. He played on their um, 1994 national championship team. And 95. And 95. Um, but he rose to national prominence um, because during the time when he was starring for the Cornhuskers, he was charged with badly beating a um, woman who I believe was his girlfriend um, at the University of Nebraska. Uh, This had really negative ramifications on his draft status. I believe he may have been drafted into the NFL, but ultimately ended up um, spending most of his playing career in the Canadian Football League. Um, and kind of legal trouble just followed him throughout his uh, his career, culminating with um, these charges that had him in jail um, and where he ultimately, um, it appears, committed suicide in his jail cell. Uh, yeah, so that's essentially what officials have said, that he committed uh, suicide um, in a cell, like, in and around January 12th. Um, his family, I think, has come out to say that they don't think that it was suicide. And I know USA Today um, and other news outlets have published a series of letters that he has written to his former coaches and essentially the letters of Lawrence Phillips and, you know, and the person that you may have just read about in newspapers, you know, the content of the letters is kind of shows a much different side of him. Um you know, as we were talking about Aaron Hernandez just trying to survive every day, like, in Bristol mm-hmm. County. I mean, these letters really hit home, like, how much it appeared that Phyllis was just trying to survive every day in jail and, and like, really about keeping his nose down and not being noticed and um, really struggling with the fact that, like, they controlled so much of when he got mail and, and when he had contact with people on the outside. And, um, and they, were, they were heartbreaking in their own way. And... Um, and for him to meet this end is is really like sad, um, and I understand that he had a very troubled, um, you know, young adulthood and adulthood, and so, you know, and he did he committed some really heinous crimes. So I'm not making an excuse for him, but it is important to know that there are multiple sides to to everyone's personalities, and um, and at least multiple facets to everyone's personalities. An interesting. Side note is that, yeah, he did spend a lot of his career playing in the Canadian Football League, but he also played for the San Francisco 49ers. And um, and the 49ers were my team growing up. Um, you know, very much I grew up in the time when they were winning Super Bowls and they were great, and it was really easy to be a 49ers fan as an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old when they were doing these amazing things. Um, I've sort of drifted away from the 49ers in my adult years just because of the way that the organization's been run, and that's totally for a different pod. But one of the things that I read about Phillips was that one of the problems that he had was like picking up like on defensive schemes. And so it was during one of his last games with the 49ers that he sort of missed um, a defensive read, which led to Steve Young getting 
like basically sacked and knocked out, like knocked unconscious. And that was oh. like the last concussion that he had before he retired. So for me, like Lawrence, or Lawrence Phillips really spells the end of like the great 49ers teams. And so that's, you know, I can sort of blame him for that. Right. And, you know, when I think back on <coughs> Lawrence Phillips, um, I, you know, often think of, he was kind of, it seemed like he was sort of the first domino to fall in the, um, sort of a downfall of the University of Nebraska football team. Um, back in the early 90s, they were just kind of the class of the um, NCAA. And after the story broke with Lawrence Phillips, they had multiple other players who, um, you know, was discovered had been committing domestic violence offenses, um, kind of getting away with it. Their quarterback, I believe, was killed in a small plane crash. Uh, their coach eventually left, and I think he went on to become a senator from Nebraska. Um, so uh, Lawrence Phillips seems to have uh, sort of directly or indirectly left a lot of trouble in his wake. Um, one other sort of interesting aspect of this very sad story um, is that Mr. Phillips was uh, in the Kern County jails at the time of his alleged suicide, I believe within the past six months or so, the Guardian newspaper did an expose on um, Kern County Sheriff's Department oh, yeah. and uh, a lot of malfeasance that's been going on there. So it'll be interesting if there is an investigation into uh, Lawrence Phillips' death, whether you know there's any sort of tying it back to sort of wrongdoing by the Sheriff's Department that was uncovered by the, the Guardian. So... Um, and I guess our, our last item for today is kind of a uh, technical sort of law litigation nerdy topic, <laughs> which is, um, but it does involve the NFL appeal of the uh, deflate gate decision. Um, the uh, NFL recently had to file a reply brief to um, Tom Brady, and I, I believe the New England Patriots, although Brady might have been doing this on his own, um, uh, the pleadings in the Second Circuit Court in New York, um, and they filed them with the wrong color on the appeals brief, which um, meant that the documents were rejected kind of for technical reasons and they had to refile them. So... It's not it's not a fatal flaw. <laughs> uh, definitely, they could have just put the right color cover on it and refiled it. And I don't know that there was a timeliness issue that was involved. So it didn't seem like... There was, and so the the briefs were accepted. But um, just for for those of you out there, uh, the court, of, the federal court of appeals has a very, and I think even state court of appeals has a really very intricate uh, set of guidelines for practitioners to follow when they file briefs with the court. So. Um, like opening briefs have to be, uh, well, actually all briefs have to have like a certain point font used, like the margins, margins. yeah, certain margins, uh, has to be double spaced. The word count has to be very precise and you actually have to sign an affidavit at the end saying like, I verify that this is under, you know, so many thousands of words and you sign your name or this brief is so many thousands of words long. Um, and then they have to be spiral bound, um, it, or bound in some way. I don't know if it has to be spiral, but they have to be bound. And there are different color covers to use to signal to the court exactly what you're filing. So, like, your opening brief has a, a color. Your reply brief has a color. Your opposition brief has a color. Like, so they're all different colors. And the NFL apparently didn't read the guidelines closely enough and filed theirs with the wrong color cover. Right. Apparently the issue arose because there was a – so. 
basically Tom Brady and the NFL are the two big parties in this case. Goes without saying. <laughs> but there are other um, parties that can get involved as interveners. And, or amicus. Or amicus. And so apparently because another party had decided to get involved in the case, it changed the NFL's um, sort of their position in terms of the filing. It turned it into, I believe, a cross-reply or a cross-complaint as opposed to just a regular response. Oh. And so that's why they thought they had to have, I think, a gray cover. But in fact, they were supposed to have used a yellow cover. Yeah. So, um, so, so, you know, and normally uh, court clerks who um, receive these briefs and, uh, you know, stamp them received and filed, they just turn them back to you and say, you've got the wrong color cover, fix it and bring it back. So, again, not fatal, but just a, just something that was interesting for some of us litigation nerds who... And especially as somebody who used to work for a large law firm, much like the one that's being hired, has been hired by the NFL to um, uh, deal with this case, it is an embarrassing mistake. <laughs> even though it, you know, shouldn't uh, shouldn't affect the NFL's uh, the, the results that it gets in the case. But um, there's some poor associate or paralegal yeah, exactly. who uh, hopefully is still employed. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just kind of a dumb thing that the NFL did right around Christmas. So I guess it was a slow news time. So yeah, I um, and you can speak to the Boston news media much more uh, like eloquently than I can. But apparently, this was a much bigger deal in the Boston news media than it was anywhere else in the United States. I think that's certainly true. Um, we have a uh, we definitely have an inferiority complex, and anyone coming after uh, our Tommy is uh, going to feel the full wrath of the Boston media. So for uh, I do think that the media kind of blew it out of proportion, assuming it was a much more um, I think important mistake than it turned out to be. Whereas it really, in reality, it's just like a it's kind of a silly thing that they have to go back and fix, but there's mm-hmm. no kind of practical impact on their case. Um, so it's just Roger Goodell looking dumb again, <laughs> which I'm, I'm always excited to hear. So, um, you know, and that's one of the things that I, I mean, I know you and I kid about this a lot, but just impugning Roger Goodell, with the <laughs> fact that the color of the brief was incorrect when it probably fell to some poor associate or some paralegal to ultimately make that decision and, and have it just trying to get it filed before they went off on their Christmas holidays. Yes. It's kind of rough. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know he can do no right, but this yeah, it's probably not on him. Probably not his fault. But again, as, as Jen pointed out, anything that I can blame Roger Goodell <laughs> for, I'm, I'm there. So, uh, so I think that's it for this week's pod. Yeah. Um, don't really know. Or, I mean, there's plenty of stuff for us to talk about. So um, we will figure out some interesting topics for next time. Yeah. All right. All right.